Last week marked uh, the end of our study in the first two chapters of Galatians. At this point, Paul has heard the reports that the Galatians had departed from the true gospel of Christ and that false teachers had brought in these ideas of keeping the law uh, in order to be a true Christian. And so you may have noticed at this point, as we've gone through these first two chapters, that Paul has kind of had a very stern tone uh, with the Galatians. But that old saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Paul is about to get really, really firm with the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. So with that said, let's do our reading today from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. The Word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. First thing I want to bring out as we look at the first four verses, verses 1 through 4, is the foolishness of work. The foolishness of work. Paul, at this point in the book, does not even hold back. He is really letting loose with all that he's got on the Galatians. And it and he does not say something like, um, for example, my beloved children who have been contending for the true gospel, you've had faith and perseverance, and I love you so much, and I pray for you. No, that's not the kind of thing he's saying here. He opens up with, Oh, foolish Galatians. So let's take a look at that word foolish. The word is an attributive adjective. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that it clarifies or it modifies an attribute of its modifier. So the word can mean mindless, not known for the use of reason, unintelligent, unwise, stupid, without understanding. So when you have an adjective, you are describing something. If I said blue car, blue describes the car. Blue is the adjective, car is the noun. Well, what Paul is doing here is he is using this word foolish with all of that meaning in it, mindless, not known for reason, unintelligent, unwise, stupid, without understanding, and he is using that idea to modify Galatians. He is saying, these are the attributes that I am assigning to you, Galatians. You're being foolish. He's saying, 
there is something wrong with your thinking people, but it's much more than the way they are thinking. There's a moral piece to it here. Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 4.22, my people are foolish. They have not known me. And this is the prophet speaking for God. So they have not known God. They are silly children. They have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. So what you have here is the prophet Jeremiah really giving an indictment against, uh, at this time, it would be the people of Judah um, through the prophet Jeremiah. Jesus says something very similar in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. He says, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? because it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So I want you to notice here that foolishness is a sin, according to Jesus. It is a moral failing. So notice also that Jesus mentioned something here called an evil eye. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But what is important for us to see here is that not only is there something wrong with your thinking, dear Galatians, but Paul is saying you have entered into sin because foolishness, according to Jesus, is a sin. And he asks the question, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? So it's very interesting that Paul reminds them that in a manner of speaking, he has presented Jesus Christ before their eyes. Now, at this point in church history, Jesus has ascended into heaven. So Jesus was not physically there. But Paul is saying, I presented Jesus in your midst through the preaching of the gospel. Now, obviously, it's um, metaphoric, meaning he's using metaphor here. But he is saying, um, and, and the way the when it says before your eyes, he's saying it's like a public announcement. You know, just like today, um, there are movie posters, there are concert posters. Uh, if you're in an area where there has ever been like a land auction or um, any kind of a thing like an eviction notice, these are posters that are put up in public so that people can see them with their eyes. And Paul's use of that here, when he says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed, he's saying, I put up a poster right up in front of your eyes to announce this to you. Why does Paul put it this way? Why doesn't he just say, I just preached to you? Well, there's a sense here with the word bewitched that ties in to this. And it also ties in with that list of sins that Jesus 
gave that I just mentioned, the idea is that someone has given the Galatians the evil eye. Evil eye. It's one of those sins that Jesus listed. So what does that mean? Well, it means someone has an envious eye or they have looked upon the Galatians, the Galatians, the Christians here in Galatia, um, with covetousness. There's a thought of casting a magical spell on the Galatians and it wreaks harm on the victim. The idea is to malign, fascinate, deceive, or beguile. I sometimes use a book whenever I'm preparing for the podcast or sermon preparation, and the title of the book is Word Pictures in the New Testament. And as I was studying for this, I actually read the word hoodoo, and I guess hoodoo is kind of like voodoo, um, in a description of what Paul has in mind here when he says bewitched. He's saying, listen, somebody has put a whammy on you because of this nonsense that you are trying to incorporate into the gospel of grace. He's saying that someone has caused them not to see clearly. Their eyesight has been messed up. And I think we should consider that Paul is not merely using a figure of speech here. Um, I'm working my way through a book right now called Dominion. That's the title of the book, and it is a secular history of the impact of Christianity on the entire world. It's basically going through the last 2,000 years. And in the chapter that I'm in, it actually talks about what was going on in the region of Galatia in 19 AD. And essentially... There were all kinds of religious cults, and they worshipped all kinds of false gods. I will just put this one out there for you as something to uh, consider, see if this sounds familiar to you. There was a worship of a particular goddess in that region. Now, goddess meaning a female deity. And in part of the worship, um, the men who were dedicated to the worship of this particular female goddess, they would dress like women. And those who were truly devoted to this goddess would go even further and perform a kind of surgery on themselves. If you catch my meaning, they would castrate themselves. And so my point is, is that at this time, when Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia, there is a lot of very messed up evil worship going on to false gods, which are really demonic forces in disguise. My point is, there truly is an evil force behind this. There is an evil force that Paul is addressing here. You foolish Galatians, somebody has bewitched you. So hopefully you can see the impact of all those words and, and the setting that Paul was writing in. Exodus chapter 7 verses 11 through 12 tells us that this is the first place in all of scripture where we read of magicians. 
And it tells us basically, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but Pharaoh was asserting that his false gods were just as powerful, um, if not more powerful than the one true living God of Israel. And these evil magicians came out, if you know the story, and they attempted to duplicate the signs that were given to Moses and Aaron, um, the signs of the one true living God. And these evil magicians are shown eventually to be no match at all for the one true living God. But the point that I'm making here is that there really is something very real, very um I hesitate to use the word true, but these things truly do exist. For Samuel chapter 28, we find the story of King Saul disguising himself, and he's going to seek a seance with the witch of Endor to bring back the prophet uh, Samuel from the dead because Saul wants to uh, consult with Samuel. And Saul had to disguise himself because he had outlawed such practices in Israel. Why did he do that? Well, he did it because God says we're not to do such things. Friends, there really is such a thing as witchcraft. There are those who do consult with the demonic. And my point is simply this. All false teachings and those who present them... Now, they may not be witches, but they are in league with the devil. They most certainly teach things that are not found in Scripture. They are in league with the devil himself. Now, your enemy will do anything to deceive you. Anything to get your eyes off of Christ and onto something other than grace. So if you're listening to this, and let's say you're fooling around with astrology. You like to read your horoscope in the newspaper or online, wherever you can get it these days. Or maybe you occasionally like to go have your palm read or you go seek the services of a medium. Or maybe one of your favorite TV shows, one of these things where they go out and they chase ghosts, the ghost hunters and all the rest of this stuff. As a Christian, you need to run from that stuff. It's not funny. It's not a game. It is extremely serious. I once knew a gypsy or a man who used to be a gypsy, and he made his living uh, telling the fortunes of people, telling their future, predicting things that would happen to them. And... This man came to Christ. God radically saved him, brought him out of that. But he spoke with me one time and he told us very clearly, this is not a game. This is not a joke. These forces are very real. Now, are there charlatans? Sure. There's people out there faking it. But he assured us that he was not a fake, that the satanic forces are very very real. So I believe when Paul says, who's bewitched you? And he's talking about the gospel. He is not playing around. He's not using a figure of speech. He is saying there really are evil forces behind this. Why? Because it's attacking the very heart of the gospel. 
And that moves us to the questions that continue on through verses two and verse four, all the way through verse four. So let's take a really quick look at it. He says, this only I want to know from you. When Paul asks this next question, he's really getting at the heart of the matter. The word that he's using here is where we get words like monotone or monotheism, mono meaning one. There truly is only one issue here. And Paul strikes at the heart of the problem. He's going to show the Galatians their error by reminding them that the gifts of the Holy Spirit came to them by the hearing of faith, not by the works of the law. And again, this word comes up in verse three, foolish. Here it is again. He says, are you so foolish, mindless, stupid, without reason? Consider the relationship between the concepts of starting something in the Holy Spirit but bringing it to completion by yourself or in the flesh. In other words, you're going to start it one way, but you're going to finish it another way. And Paul is in, he is intentionally being ironic here. They couldn't complete the work of the spirit by means of the flesh back then. And the same is true for us today. They would be contradicting themselves. And just as we saw last week with Peter, If they attempted to be back under the old covenant, they would be contradicting themselves, just like Peter was trying to do in the previous episode. So don't attempt to complete the works of the flesh, or don't attempt to complete with works of the flesh, that's what I'm trying to say, with what was started by the Holy Spirit. Paul mentioned suffering. Now, we don't have any record of suffering of the church in North Galatia, but we do have records from Acts 14, verses 2, 5, 19, and 22, where there was persecution in the southern part of Galatia. Now, Paul's point here is that if you went through some kind of persecution for the faith, if you did go through persecution, only to find out that what you were believing in is not the true gospel, then why go through the pain? Why go through the persecution? It's a great question, isn't it? In other words, he's saying, you guys have suffered for your faith. Did you suffer for something that's not true? Do you have to add works now to your salvation? So this could also be um, not only about persecution that they may have faced, but I do believe there, there are struggles that we all face as believers through life and our own life experiences. And Paul is asking, haven't you learned anything? Haven't you learned anything about trusting God and not in yourself? Trust God and not your works. That brings us to verses five and six. My second point, the hearing of faith. First point was the foolishness of works. And now we have the hearing of of faith in verse five and six. And as soon as I read this, my first thought was uh, from Romans 10, 17, where it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this is what we have in view here in verses five and six. The Galatians had heard the gospel. They had received it by faith. And we know this is what Paul's getting at because he points to the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst. Paul emphasizes the power of God 
the God the Father, that is, as proof of the Christian life. It's one of faith and not of works. If you go back and read verses 5 and 6, you're going to read the word he. Uh, in some versions, it's a capital H, which tells you that it's deity, he. And in these verses, it's God. And the word spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So you have God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in these verses. So Paul, who is very good with rhetorical questions, which is what this particular study is full of, is Paul's rhetorical questions. He asks us God is doing uh, the works that he does in their midst by the law or by the hearing of faith. And Paul answers his own question. Of course, he's not really asking them a question waiting to hear their answer. It's a rhetorical question trying to get them to think about it. And he answers it by using what some people have called Exhibit A. A is for Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This phrase, he who supplies, comes from a Greek word. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm good at analyzing the Greek and sometimes I can't pronounce the words too well. Um, but here's what this phrase means. It is translated as provides in other places. The idea here is not just to supply, but there is a great abundance of that supply. God is generous in his supply. It means to give something that is useful or necessary to furnish besides. In other words, to give more than, more than you need, to have supply and aid. So when it says, he who supplies, this is what Paul has in, in, in view. The, in the fullest definition of terms, God is supplying much more than the bare minimum. Now, I don't want you to go run off on a tangent on this because I've known people who claim to receive more of the Holy Spirit at some point after salvation. And there are plenty who claim that there is a blessing which comes after salvation. It's a completely separate work of the Holy Spirit, and they call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Friends, listen to me closely. Holy Spirit baptism is what places you in the body of Christ. You don't need, nor should you even be looking for extra signs and wonders as a separate proof that you have the Holy Spirit within you. The day that you became a Christian, you received the Holy Spirit, and listen, you got all of him. You don't receive a little bit now and then a little bit later. That's not how our God works. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus commands his disciples to go wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. What was that promise? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came, and he fulfilled the promises that you find in Acts chapter 2. And this is in agreement with what we find here in our text today. It is the same Holy Spirit that is at work in Galatia. Luke eleven thirteen, the Holy Spirit will come to those who ask him. There's no extra signs and wonders that are required. There's no example in scripture where you find people doing what we used to call 
tarrying. In other words, we're going to tarry. We're going to wait and moan and cry and carry on with the Lord until he gives us the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. So what is it that the Holy Spirit does in our life? He guides us into all truth. The point is that God the Father spoke through the Son, Jesus Christ, and gave us the promise of the Holy Spirit. He is faithful to his promise, and it is the Spirit of the living God who has brought you to life and truth if you are a Christian. Well, great, James. You just said that we don't need to seek after signs and wonders and all the rest, but it says right here in the very same text that God, the Holy Spirit, has performed miracles among you, referring to the Galatians. Well, I'm so glad you asked. So glad you brought that up. Out of this vast supply of generosity that comes from our God, the Galatians saw the Holy Spirit work miracles among them. I have no problem with that. This word here for miracles, it comes from the same word dunamis, which is uh, sounds a lot like dynamite, if that helps you remember it. And it means power and ability. Indeed, the Holy Spirit gives us power and ability. No question. I'm not even arguing that. My question is, what is in view here in the text? There are two possible meanings, and I actually believe both of them are correct. Number one, Paul was making a reference to the miraculous events which took place in front of the Galatians. Friends, there's no question that there were signs and wonders in the first century church. Jesus himself performed miracles, and all the sign gifts were given to the church as a sign of Apostleship. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Jesus performed miracles as proof of his Messiahship. He was fulfilling prophecy. And if you go back and listen to the last few episodes, I made reference to Jesus being the cornerstone and the apostles being the foundation upon which the church is built. You don't continue to lay one foundation on top of another foundation and so on. No, the foundation has been laid and now the church is being built. The church is going forward. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 through 4 teaches us that by the time the Jewish recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, which is what we call the book of Hebrews, by the time they got it and they read it, that the miraculous events associated with apostolic ministry were in the past. How can you say that, James? Well, because the verbs that are used in the reference I just gave, it's all past tense. Those who claim to exhibit these kinds of signs in our world today, they claim all kinds of signs and wonders. They have been shown over and over and over again to be charlatans, liars, predators. Their signs are fake. Their church services are out of order. And the solid preaching and teaching like I'm giving here today during this episode, it gets mocked. 
And you've heard me talk about the new apostolic reformation, the N-A-R. It's a joke. It's not new. It's not apostolic. And it is definitely not the reformation. And the folks involved in this have been shown to be liars at, at, at the at the least they are self-deceived at the worst they know what they're doing and they know it's fake and they're trying to bewitch people just like paul talks about here i am amazed that people well-meaning christian folk are just like these foolish galatians and they go after things and they are so easily bewitched looking for a sign the second meaning here is that paul's talking about the power of the holy spirit within each of them over satan over sin the victory that they have over the flesh and their own human weakness john macarthur says and this is a quote from john macarthur Paul's preaching in Corinth was in demonstration of the spirit of power, according to 1 Corinthians 2.4. He even boasted in his own weakness in order that the power of Christ might dwell in him, according to 2 Corinthians 12.9. And God says, a God, according to Paul, says, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, Ephesians 3, 20. Moving on, I want to get back to exhibit A. A is for Abraham. Verse 6, I love the fact that Paul uses Abraham as an example. No doubt this would have caught the attention of those Judaizers. After all, they're the ones claiming that you've got to observe the old covenant and abide by the law of Moses to become a Christian. Now, what we need to remember here about Abraham is that he, just like all of us, he was not inherently righteous. Now, if you want to know what I mean by inherently righteous, you need to go back to the previous episode and listen to what I have to say about being inherently righteous. And Paul takes us back to Genesis 15, where God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed it. I encourage you to go back, if you haven't already, listen to my uh, episodes on the book of Genesis. And there you will find uh, Abraham believed the promise of God in Genesis 15. Abraham did more than believe in God. You know, you could ask people today, do you believe in God? And, and probably a huge percentage of people would say, yeah, I believe in God, in that they believe that there is a higher power of some kind. But that's not the kind of belief we're talking about here. Abraham trusted God. He trusted God. And the Bible tells us that this was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. You will remember that Abraham offered Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. Now, this is an excellent example of faith, which is alive in the believer. Action took place because Abraham already had faith well before the test came. In Abraham's mind, it was settled. Abraham showed his faith, not only to God, 
but to all human beings. It was an outward faith. It was a living faith, and it went with Abraham everywhere. This brings us to our third point, which we're going to consider verses 7 through 9 of our text. 7 through 9, the family of faith. We've talked about the hearing of faith. Now we're going to talk about the family of faith. Paul gives, Paul gives us here not only proof positive from the Old Testament, but he gives a doctrine which is very important to those of us who are confessional people. We are new covenant people, reformed people. We need to be reminded of these things because, again, there's so much false teaching going on in the world today, especially here in the West. Verse 7, those who are the children of Abraham are not all those who are the descendants of Abraham. Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham, but he wasn't justified by faith. And you are not justified because of your biology or your lineage or where you came from. You are justified by faith. Now, Paul makes it clear that if you want to be a child of Abraham, you've got to have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Verse 8, the main theme of all of Galatians is what is the gospel and what is not the gospel. Now, we should not forget that this is not a disagreement over some non-essential thing like Say, for example, things that we disagree on, consumption of alcohol, um, whether I should have a baby baptized or whether I should have a baby dedicated um, without baptism. Um, it, these are things that we can have disagreements on within the family of God. And you've heard me talk about this before as an in-house debate. We can have these kind of discussions and it doesn't affect our salvation. We can have disagreements among Christians and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not what's going on here in Galatia. In verse 8, we realize that there is an attack upon the gospel of grace itself. What is Paul saying here in this verse? Paul comes right out and states that when God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham, it was the gospel which is in view. You want to be a part of this family? You have to have the faith that Abraham had. You want to be a Christian? You need to believe in the gospel of grace, not of works, that Jesus truly paid it all. Now, because of what I'm about to get into, people use the term replacement theology, replacement theology. And there are people that may not even know what that means. You may have never even heard of it. Replacement theology is a term that some people use to describe what I believe that the church is now God's Israel. Now, I don't like the term replacement theology, and I'm going to explain to you why. 
replacement theology implies that that I believe that it was Israel first and then God finished dealing with Israel and then God had the church. I don't believe that. I don't believe that the term replacement theology is an accurate representation of what I believe as a reformed Christian. Now, I believe that people that use this term, they're still Christians. They are just not properly representing the reformed view. They're not correctly defining their terms. And this happens a lot whenever uh, someone who's not a Calvinist begins to talk about Calvinism. They use terms. Um, it's, it's kind of like a straw man argument. They set up a definition of terms that isn't exactly accurate. And then they destroy that argument and they then say, well, see, Calvinism is wrong. Or in this case, replacement theology is wrong. Here's my point. You need to really study this and take a look at what Paul is saying here. There has never been a point in time that the church was not in the mind of God. The church is not an afterthought. It's not Israel first and then the church. All the way back in the very, very beginning, it was always the church. It was always believing in Christ. There is only one way that anyone is saved, Old Testament or new, and that is to trust in Christ the way that Abraham did. Well, you say, how did Abraham trust in Christ? He is B.C., meaning before Christ. Well, let me explain. Study these verses here in Galatia. I'm sorry, Galatians. Study these verses here in Galatians. It says, the scripture, foreseeing what God was doing, preached the gospel to Abraham. Paul personifies the scripture because obviously the scripture doesn't literally physically speak like I'm doing right now. But Paul says it was the gospel was preached to Abraham. Remember, Paul's writing under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's really the Holy Spirit that is telling us through his servant, Paul, that the gospel was preached to Abraham. How did that happen? Well, Abraham believed in a promise, the promise of God that one day the Holy Spirit was going to come. One day, it wouldn't be Isaac on the altar. It would be the supreme sacrifice. Now, Abraham did not have the full Bible that we have today. Abraham may have had a limited understanding. He may have had many questions that weren't fully answered in his lifetime, but he believed God looking forward to a completed promise where you and I have the advantage being on this side of the cross, after the cross, we can look back and see the completed work of Christ. So my only point, the only point I want to make about this is that it's truly not accurate to, to accuse us of believing in replacement theology because there was never a time 
that the church of Jesus Christ was not in the mind of God. Did Israel play a part? Absolutely. They preserved the word of God. Israel is where our Messiah came from. There is no question about that. The Jewish people were God's chosen nation. But today, God's chosen people are his church. It's no longer the nation of Israel. And when you start to see this, it is just like God's sovereignty and salvation. It is just like justification by faith. When you start to see these things, it changes everything. Who are Christians? Who, who, are, who is the church? Well, the church is made up of Christians. Well, who are Christians? Christians are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. They have the faith of Abraham. And therefore, according to Paul and according to the Holy Spirit, we are sons of Abraham. Who makes up the church? God's chosen God's elect people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation by faith in Christ. All nations have thus been blessed through Abraham. The promise has come. Matthew 3, 7, Luke 3, 7. It was John the Baptist who denounces the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he calls them vipers, even though they were biological descendants of Abraham. If you remember the story, John the Baptist tells him straight out, God could raise up children of Abraham from these stones, these rocks. In other words, don't think you're special because you've got some kind of biological relationship to Abraham. John 8, 37 through 44, Jesus terms the Pharisees children of the devil. Does that sound like children of Abraham? No. Not children of Abraham, and they're certainly not children of God. They were children of the devil. Biology has nothing to do with it. Verse 9 in our text today, what we have here is not just any faith, because it says the faith of Abraham. It is the true faith in Christ. The word here for faith is that sense of a strong confidence in, a reliance upon, with the object of that trust understood. If you read verse 9, it doesn't say faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that. It just says faith. Well, how am I to understand that this is faith in Christ? Because you read the entire book of Galatians. You start at the beginning at chapter 1, and you go verse by verse until you get to where we are now. And the way that the word is placed in verse 9 it is understood that the object of that trust and that faith is Christ. There, this is where context comes into play. This is why you need to go verse by verse through your entire Bible and don't rip things out of context. This is just another reason that I go through the Bible the way that I do. It has forced me to, even in my own life, listener, whoever's listening to me, even in my own life, I have had things that I held to as a child, being raised in the church. I, I had a certain idea about all kinds of things. And as I began to study the scriptures verse by verse, everything started to change because I could not rip scriptures out of their context and make it mean 
whatever I wanted it to mean. We have to go with what God said, not what we wish that he would have said, but what he really did say. So this verse also refers to Abraham as believing Abraham. It's the same root word as faith in Greek. It changes just a little bit um, because in the Greek language, you have prefixes and suffixes, and, and that lets you know uh, the figure of speech it is. And in this case, it changes just a little bit to become an adjective. Why am I making a big deal about that? Because Abraham, again, we're talking about characterizing a noun by the adjective that comes before it. Abraham is characterized by his belief, his trust in, his faith in, his reliance upon that strong confidence that Abraham had in the son of the living God even before the incarnation. There's a great assurance here. There is a great assurance here. I hope that we all realize that we have received a generous, overflowing, abundantly powerful gift in the Holy Spirit to live this life that God has called us to. We have received eternal salvation through faith in Christ the Lord. God the Father promised, and as always, he keeps his promises. How foolish we would be, just like the foolish Galatians, if we thought for one second that we could add to the completed work of Christ by doing something on our part. Just as Abraham believed God and trusted in him, we are to do the same. There's simply no other way to be a member of Abraham's family, this family of faith. The foolish Galatians, they could yet become wise, and so can we. Reflect on your own experience. Do like they should have done. Reflect on their experience. Reflect on the covenant of Abraham and the curse of the law, which we will get into in the next episode. They could, and we can today, return to the wisdom of the gospel. Sola fide, faith alone. Until next time, God bless you. Jesus is the answer of all the world today. Above them there's no Reflections of the old past in the face you every day. But there's one thing that I do know Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer of all the world today. Above us, there's no Some won't shine.
above a 